Hello, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, October 23rd. And we've come to this critical point in, in our look, in our study together of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We have seen how Paul has revealed the truth behind the problems that we face in life, both as individuals and on a social level, on a, a level of society. These problems Paul calls strongholds. Um, in other words, these are situations where evil is entrenched. And it produces these really hard and tough and difficult problems that are certainly not easily solved. And last week we talked about the secret of the strength of these strongholds, what, what makes them so entrenched, these problems. And, and we saw that it lies in two things that Paul points out to us, that behind these problems that puzzle, perplex society and individuals in any age, especially ours, but in any age, well, there are these two elements, human pride, that is pride as independence from God. It's a self-sufficient humanity. It's a, this idea that I can do it all. I don't need God. And secondly, that pride then expressed through very clever and plausible arguments or reasonings that make the action based on pride sound like the very logical thing to do. So if we've been keeping up with any kind of media at all, we're aware of how widespread these arguments and reasonings are. These, these plausible-sounding defenses of the pride that is behind the problems of society. It's important for us to understand as we seek to explain life in light of Scripture that they reveal that the heart of any social problem is always pride. This human sense of sufficiency, self-sufficiency without God. Now, there's nothing wrong with human sufficiency in and of itself. God intended humanity to be capable to be capable beings, but not in and ourselves. There there is the lie. We we you see we do, we do not have capability in ourselves. Our ability lies in God. So the pride that that sees men and women as being capable apart from God is unrealistic. It is false. It is an illusion. Yet it's on this illusion that the worldly outlook of life is is really entirely based. Sometimes this pride is manifest, as we see it today in in wounded egos, right? Striking back at some either imagined or very real injustice. It's like the underdog mentality. Sometimes it's manifest as a kind of imperialistic self-assurance that that overrides um, the feelings and rights of others. But in either case, whether it's the up and out or the down and out, it, it's pride that lies at the root of the activity. As we've already seen, when that pride is held up and supported by arguments, sometimes very passionate, other times very cold and logical, it becomes strong, it becomes immovable, entrenched. And so it constitutes these strongholds that Paul speaks of. So to solve these problems, whatever they may be in their specific forms, it's clearly evident that we must deal with these two things. If Christians, if believers are going to be of any help in the world in which we live, when, in which we are called to live, in the struggle of the world with these gripping, perplexing, demanding, destructive problems, we have to come to grips 
with these two issues. These arguments be overthrown, must be overthrown and the pride that is behind it must be humbled and brought down. And that Paul says is what Christians acting as Christians are alone capable of doing. His expression in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. So here Paul brings in, into, into view the weapons of the believer, of, of you and I, of, of Christians. He, he implies that we are clearly opposite to the weapons of the world. These, these unworldly weapons are, as we've talked about every week, truth, love, righteousness, and faith prayer. And it's important to see, as, as we've suggested before, that these weapons find expression, they find meaning they find context in the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, that is what Paul is talking about. The gospel is the proclamation of truth, the demonstration of love and righteousness, and the operation of faith and prayer. We have not declared the gospel if these four elements are present. We cannot have them present in any human situation without having proclaimed and demonstrated the gospel. They are interchangeable. They are identical things. And so that's why when Paul came to Corinth, that great city in which the church to which this letter is addressed is located, he found there in Corinth men and women who were in the grip of very serious social problems. There was sexual perversion, sexual license, racial divisions, family feuds, political tyranny, etc., All the problems that we know today were present in Corinth. And what did he say about his approach? Here he comes to this Greek city with its love of philosophy, its love of human wisdom, and he throws down a gauntlet, clearly and unmistakably. He says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's what we need. This is the message that can help us. In declaring that message, he was declaring the truth about life and about God. Jesus Christ and him crucified stands at the very heart of life. Nothing can be understood properly apart from it. And that's what Paul means. So with that message, he also demonstrated the love of his heart in his willingness to deprive himself for their sake, to meet their physical and their spiritual needs. He lived in them, in the midst of them, before them, with them, a wholesome, well-adjusted life, free from tension and stress, balanced in in almost every way. He was a whole person. And this made its impact on these people. They saw in Paul a clear example of what he was talking about. He lived a righteous life. He also prayed for them, as he himself declared, in in the expectation that God would do great things to help them and change them, to open their eyes, to make them see life as it really was. In other words, he declared the truth, he demonstrated love, he lived a righteous life, and he practiced constantly prayer and faith for these people. So he declared the gospel, and in that way, Paul destroyed their arguments, brought low their pride, delivered them, and set them free. These also are the weapons by which he's proposing to go on attacking the stronghold he finds entrenched in this church in Corinth. It's tremendously important for us to see that the believer, that the Christian approach to these arguments 
by which evil is entrenched in society is not to try and destroy the arguments with counter arguments. Paul says, I did not come to argue with you or to discuss philosophy. I did not come to debate about the wisdom of the world or to argue with you on the basis of one viewpoint versus another or on one human authority against another. I came to introduce a new element. And here's where Christians, here's where believers have to see the uniqueness of his position because each of us is capable of introducing into any situation we find ourselves a totally new element, a radical difference. There is a radical difference about the gospel. A unique element is introduced into life. Paul puts it in one phrase. It is the truth about the cross of Jesus Christ. The word of the cross, he says, is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16. It was that word of the cross, that truth about Jesus, coupled with love and righteousness and faith, that did the trick here in Corinth. And it's the only thing that will do the quote-unquote trick in our world today. But so oftentimes, so oftentimes we want to we couple it with an agenda, whether it be a political agenda, whether it be a social agenda, whether it be a financial agenda, whether it be a worldview agenda, whether it be something, uh, a comfort level agenda, whether it be a prosperity agenda, it doesn't matter. We couple it. And it's the cross of Jesus is Jesus Christ crucified and nothing else. On every hand, we find leaders of, of thought who are sick and tired of the empty speech that people have been trying for centuries. They do not work. They merely quiet something here for a moment, only to have it break out again in another way and oftentimes worse. The world of our day is, eloqu- is an eloquent witness to the truth of that statement. How then does the gospel attack and destroy arguments? So perhaps we need to analyze this a little more closely, since we need to understand clearly the power of the word of God in any human situation. After all, this gospel is not addressed to religious people. This gospel is addressed to the world in desperate need. And so it is designed to do something about the need of the world. How does it do it? Well, Paul says in two ways, and he lists two steps here. First, we destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God. We pull down, literally pull down. We destroy these two things, arguments and pride. And second, we capture every thought to obey Jesus Christ. So today we're only going to look at the first of these. We'll consider this very carefully. You got to listen next week for the second. Because here we're coming to the very heart of Paul's whole argument. We must understand just how the gospel works in our world, in society. The first thing it does, Paul says this, is to destroy or to pull down arguments and pride. But it does this not by an overwhelming counterattack against these arguments. We've already said that. But rather by a process of undermining them. In other words, the gospel does not attack the reasons of humanity directly. It is not simply a debate or even a dialogue. The gospel is not an attempt to answer argument with counter-argument or merely to expose the error in reasoning of those who offer a false view of life. The gospel does not do that. Instead, it assaults the person behind the argument. And that is the way it works. Instead of destroying the philosophy directly, the gospel captures the philosopher. And by doing so, then destroys the philosophy. 
And it's very important that we see this. The gospel undermines arguments by capturing, capturing the arguer. It reaches behind the argument to change the person. And when that happens, we not only have ended the argument, but we have gained the person as a prospect for an entirely different view of life, changed them drastically and dramatically. And there's several ways that this takes place. We can see it confirmed all around us. It's also illustrated very plainly and very clearly in the scriptures. First, the gospel addresses itself to the vacuums created in the heart of the person by the very arguments which they support their false ideas. So in other words, it declares truth which lies beyond the reach of these reasonings, these arguments of people. I came across this read, this this week, a, a review of C.S. Lewis's writings by a man who, though he was a Christian, was taking the position of uh, um, an atheistic reviewer. In, in, in reviewing Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, which is his basic explanation of the, of the gospel, of the Christian message, the reviewer said, from an, from an atheistic point of view, it is most disconcerting to have one's case against Christianity well in hand only to find that Lewis doesn't give the answers we expect to refute. Yeah, that is disconcerting. It it puzzles them. It throws people. They do not understand what we're doing. But this is the heart of the gospel. It reveals things men and women do not know, and yet which they sense are true. So it, it addresses itself to those vacuums in our lives which are not covered by our reasoned arguments. So, so let's look at what I mean here, what we mean. When, when people live without Jesus and therefore without the knowledge of God, life for them has no depth. Life is shallow. It's lived on the surface. Now, it may be broad, but it's shallow. It has no depth. Many people confuse breadth and depth. They're two entirely different things. They think that because they're educated and have a vast range of interest in many subjects and things that this constitutes depth. But it's not depth. It's breadth. And many think that all they need to do is to broaden their interest and find new things, new hobbies, new projects, new things to captivate them. But that does not add another dimension. It only increases a dimension that is already there. We can have a broad life of many interests as well as a long one. But we will still have not added the dimension of depth. This lack of depth is seen in human beings in in several ways. It's revealed in restlessness, for instance, and not being captivated very long by anything and becoming easily bored. That always indicates a lack of depth. Also, a discontent and an indifference to things of the spirit is indicative of a lack of depth. Fear of solitude or paradoxically, a fear of crowds is an indication of the lack of depth. Yet because people are human beings designed by God to live in multiple dimensions here, when when they cram their lives into just two, length and breadth, they they deeply feel the lack of depth. There's something innate in humankind, something hidden that hungers after this quote-unquote third world, if you will. And it is to these hidden hungers that everyone experiences because we were created to experience them that the gospel and the gospel alone speaks. It makes marvelous appeal and it reaches behind the arguments. After all, the arguments find expression only in the two dimensions which are familiar. 
the non-Christian thinks this is all there is to life. And they've, they've, they've gathered up all their defenses in these two different areas, in length and, bre- and width or breadth. But the gospel says, pays little attention to these things. It speaks to that third realm, and therefore it gets right down to the very heart of the person behind the arguments. It does not try to answer them. does not try to reason with them. There is a time and a place for that later. But it simply speaks to the hungers in people. Those hungers are evident in our world today. So ran across this quotation from T.S. Eliot's poem, The Rock, that expresses them very powerfully. And he says this, All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance, and all our ignorance brings us nearer to death. But nearness to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? There are a lot of people asking that question. Where is the life that we have lost by living? Not living life, but by living this falseness, by passing time, so to speak. Their lives are shallow. They're lived only on the surface. They lack depth, the richness that God alone can give. But this is not the way we were designed. The biblical view of the relationship of people and God is expressed in one short phrase from the 47th Psalm, deep calls out to deep. And that is what we are to be in relationship to God. The deeps in humanity are to cry out to the deeps in God and find fulfillment and satisfaction. The lack of that is creating the restlessness and the agony and everything of life we observe around us on every side. Now, the gospel presents evidence of this third dimension, if you will, to humanity. It says new things, startling things, remarkable things, frightening things to the person who does not know God, to the person who lives in only those two dimensions. So the gospel puzzles them and challenges them and makes them think even when they do not want to think, even when they think that they have thought about everything. And that's why we do not need to fear to speak these truths because they are powerful in their ability to challenge the thinking of men and women. And this is where the gospel has power. It comes at humanity in an unexpected way. It gets behind our carefully erected defenses, very much like the attack of the Nazis on France in World War II. They simply ignored the Maginot Line that had been erected and went around it and on an end sweep came through the low countries into France. And so the gospel does when it's properly presented. And this is why it's so impossible for humanity to, to erect, to build up adequate defenses against the gospel. And we have to understand this. Do not try to assault the castle at its strongest point. There are also weak spots which can be broached and which make a man or a woman, even an intellectual, wide open to the assault of the gospel. This is only the first of several ways which the gospel destroys arguments and brings down pride. And we're going to look at the others together next week. But let's be thinking of how God can use us in this way. For the gospel is God's solution to the problems of life. I can't stress that too strongly. So let's see the gospel in that category. Amen. And God bless.